0: Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, Judges chapter 4. Judges chapter 4 as we continue our depressing summer series. God is so good. Let's pray as we dive into God's Word together. Father, we we come this morning. Some of us beaten up over a week of of exhaustion and tired, and uh, we're battling to keep our eyes awake. Even now, uh, some of us eager and, and ready to hear from you. Others battling, battling sickness and battling even temptation. Knowing the the Spirit is, is dealing work with their heart right now. And God, I pray, regardless of the situation of Your people coming here this morning, that You do mighty work through Your Word. God, we know this is only possible through Your Holy Spirit at work in Your Word. And we act that He is living and active this morning, as he convicts, as he encourages, and as he equips your saints for the work of ministry. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Judges chapter 4, if you're with us, if you remember last week, we had a, a little break as a missionary came in. But we are back to the book of Judges this week. If you could be praying for Pastor Nate Uh, He is away on vacation with his family. So if you could just keep him uh, in your prayers, that God allows him to have a restful time away. And he equips him and allows him to come back energized for God's service and for your good. And so, we pray that. But we're back in the book of Judges, and it's a good uh, challenge, perhaps, this morning as I can be a t- tad long-winded anyways, and I'm given four, two chapters and communion. And so I will be gracious, and I will, I will try to be sensitive of your time this morning, but there is so much uh, good stuff here, um, it, it, it really pains me to not be able to uh, dive in as deeply as we, we definitely could into some of these, these characters. But as we look back at this study of Judges, There's a few things that we can remember. A few things that that are kind of tying themes throughout this book. You see, the Gospel shines throughout the book of Judges. And as we go through this book, we're reminded time and time again of God's rescuing work. We are brought face to face with unworthy saviors, and our attention points forward to the true Savior that's to come. Judges is about Jesus. And I hope that as we look at this passage this morning, it creates a hunger in our souls, and we're able to taste and see that the Lord indeed is good. So let's start in the scriptures this morning, Judges chapter 4, verse 1. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan. Who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Hagoyim. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had nine hundred chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for twenty years. Now, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Labadith, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit in the palm, the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh, Nephtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking ten thousand from the people of Nephtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you at the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. And Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Here, here in our, our narrative, we have some foreshadowing. And up to this point, perhaps we're, th- we're thinking even in our mind, this, this hand of this woman that they're going to be sold into is Deborah herself. Deborah arose and went to Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out to Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and his, pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zanonim, which is near Kadesh. We'll get back to verse 11. And verse 11 kind of seems awkwardly placed, and we'll talk about that. Verse 12, when Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up from Mount Tabor, Sisera called out his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him, from Herosheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up for this day, for this is the day that the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Herosheth Hagoyim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left, but Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was, not pe- there was peace between Jabin the king of, ha- king of Hazor and ah- Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord. Turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent. And she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please, "'Give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty.' So she opened up a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, "'Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks, "'Is anyone here?' Say no.' But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple." until it went down into the ground while he was laying fast asleep from weariness. The writer, to make it explicitly clear, adds these words, so he died. <laughs> and behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man with whom you are, whom you are seeking. So Barak gets there and she says, I'll show you the guy you're looking for. So he went into her, and there Sisera lay dead with a tent peg in his temple. Probably not what Barak was expecting. So on that day, God subdued Jabin the king of Canaan before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin the king of Canaan until they destroyed Jabin the king of Canaan. Neat little little part here. Subdued is, is sounds very similar to Canaan. And so, subdued Canaan. There's a little pun going on here of Canaan was subdued. Um, and, and so, uh, a neat little addition that the author includes for us. So we powered through this passage, but let me break it down for us because I think there's three main themes throughout this account. Three main themes throughout this account. And I would say that these themes are not unique to Judges 4 and 5. In fact, these themes are not even unique to the book of Judges, although we see them time and time again. These are the themes of redemptive history. These are the main concepts for Christianity. And so as we march through these points, I hope that they're applied and, and we can see their threads in more places than just Judges. But I hope we can definitely see the color and the texture of the thread in the book of Judges. So first, we come to this important reality that God punishes the guilty. God punishes the guilty. Verse 1 of Judges, "...and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord." Again, we see this cycle over and over again. Pastor Nate, a couple of weeks ago, illustrated this cycle, and it goes something like this. Israel serves the Lord. Israel falls into idolatry. Israel is enslaved. Israel cries out to the Lord. God raises up a judge. Israel is delivered. And then it starts all over again. So we see them serving the Lord, enjoying the Lord in rest. We see sin enter the picture. Because sin enters the picture, we see them under oppression. And then they cry out to the only one who can save them. And He sends a Savior. They are brought back into a period of rest in which they serve the Lord again. And that's what we see in this book. It's interesting... In Judges four, how the story is told. Because often, as we see in in Hebrew literature, we have what is referred to as an A, A one, A two, B one, B two, as they kind of work their way towards the most important thing, and that is what I hope that we can see as we march through the scripture. So first, we see some. Uh, Punishment of the people of God in verse 2. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who, re- who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoyim. The people cried out to the Lord for help, and he had, for he had nine hundred chariots of iron and impressed the people of Israel cruelly for twenty years. Judges 5 in the song it often gives us more details, and it does so in this case. It said they couldn't even go outside for fear. The streets were vacant. They were, they were, they were hiding away. This is a time of heightened uh, oppression. So they have a, a bunch of shops that they own. They can't go out to, to, run, up, to run their Burger King because they kind of have to stay inside. Looking out, peering out, always worried what might happen. And this wasn't a pleasant oppression. Because we see Cicero was an evil man. They'd be fearful not just of their lives, but for their children to be raped. This was a time of, of great cruelty. So what we see is those who are God's people are disciplined. They're disciplined. They're disciplined under this, so that they cry out, so that they recognize their need for God. So the result is that they are brought near and they're given a time of rest. The result of the discipline is them being redirected towards fellowship with God. As the psalmist declares in Psalm 119, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. So we see the people falling once again into sin, doing evil in the sight of the Lord, and God directing them back to himself through the discipline. But we see the opposite side of that as well. Verse 23. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel in the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against the king of Canaan. Listen to this. Until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. So you see the opposite side. Those who are guilty. Those who are not God's people are destroyed. They're, those who are not His people are punished. And the result is they're forever away and there is no rest. The result is not them coming back into relationship, but them being pushed forever away. Pressed harder and harder against them. And so we see that with the account of Jabin. But we also see that with Sisera. Interesting to note that we both see the Lord selling. The people of Israel, in verse 2. And the Lord selling Sisera, in verse 9. He's selling Sisera into the hand of a woman. And so there's a similarity in the language. It's the same Hebrew word. And we can see there that the big contrast. His people are sold with the hope of coming back in. Sisera is sold with the ultimate demise of being forever away. The difference of how God punishes the guilty. And all of this is going back to the character of who our God is. The character of who God is. When Moses catches a glimpse of God in Exodus chapter 34, we hear about a holy and merciful and gracious God, but then immediately following that we hear who can by no means clear the guilty. God's people here are guilty. They deserve punishment. And God's enemies here are guilty and they deserve punishment. So how can there be a difference between between how God deals with them if they're both guilty? Well, that's the distinction of belonging to God. When we talk about how that happens. Second, we see Deborah enter the story in verse 4. We see Deborah enter the story in verse 4. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Labedith, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son Abinoam, from Kadesh, Nephtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord God commanded you. And so we see her talking to Barak. We see her judging and people coming to her. And this is a very unique situation. So how does God provide for his people? This is a very unique story in the book of Judges because it's through three different people. Three unlikely people. And the first we're introduced to is Deborah. We're introduced to Deborah. If we're going to sum up Deborah, we could probably say this. She's called to many things, and she's faithful in many things. We see a distinction between her and some of the other judges. Not simply a judge who's victorious in war, but one who is counseling the people. One who is meeting with the people. Pointing forward to the wonderful counselor that we have in Jesus Christ. And so we have to pause a minute and, and think about just who Deborah is. <clears throat> and I think this is a this is an important important pausing point because if you remember, if you've been with us for this series of, of judges, we made a distinction between God telling a story of kind of what happened and God telling us what to do. And we have to recognize that this is God telling us a story of what had happened. In other words, these events in Judges are descriptive, they're not prescriptive. They describe what happened, they don't prescribe how we are supposed to act. The reason that I bring that up is because Deborah is often hijacked as a character of someone who is declaring the Word of God, therefore, we can have women preachers today. And what I think that is, is reading our contemporary situation, back into the context instead of seeing it for where it is. Instead of understanding it for what God has intended it for. And so I think we have to be careful with playing fast and loose with with the passage. Others will say, well, Deborah judging here is a clear sign of God's judgment on a nation because we can see in Isaiah 3, Verse 12, that God often raises up women as a sign of judgment on his people. I understand that. I don't know if we can go to that with the passage at hand. We see that God raises her up. We see that God's working through her. For full disclosure, at First Baptist here, we are what is referred to as a complementarian church, which means we believe in a distinction between roles of men and women both in the home and in the church. And so because of that we're not seeing Deborah as an example of of how we should conduct worship, how we should have leadership in the church. But I do think we can pull a lot from Deborah. I think we can under we can we can catch a glimpse of of just what God's doing. Another thing I want to make Mention on that. Never once in the Old Testament or in the New Testament do we see women operating the office of priest. Here she's prophet, prophet, prophetess, but she's not priest. Uh, one thing that is unique for the uh, office in, in New Testament church as well is administering the ordinances, serving the Lord's Supper. Not because we think that we're sacrificing by doing that, but we're remembering and reflecting and looking back at the once and for all sacrifice by Jesus Christ. I think We have to be very careful of saying a one-to-one correlation between uh, Old Testament prophetess and a New Testament uh, pastor, elder, or deacon. And so it's important that we make that distinction. I'm going to go into a ton of details there just by... Uh, by way of of time. But I do think we can see a lot of of neat things in Deborah as far as her counseling and coming alongside those. It may speak to men not being willing to step up. We see a little bit of that with Barak. And that is maybe also something that we could pull forward to today. Where men do not step up is trouble for the church. And I think we can draw that. We also need to recognize that in those times... The people of God were both, were both maybe church or or organized religion type thing, but they're also a nation, and so to draw similarities would be, would not be faithful to the passage. Next, maybe not chronologically, but maybe in level of importance that we're in, introduced to is, is, jail. We're introduced to jail. Jail and Deborah have the most verses dedicated toward, to them. And so they take up the most of this passage. And so we see Jael, the wife of Heber. And so we have to ask the question, well, who is this? This is, if, there's, if Deborah's unlikely, Jael's way more unlikely. What is she doing here? And, and, and in case we, we, we need to ask those questions and try to think of them, we can see in verse 11 that the, the author is setting us up for her to be there. And so, verse 11, And Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites and the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law, and Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak. And so, what we see is, hey, all we, all we know in verse 11 is some people packed a U-Haul and they moved. So they loaded up and they moved out and now they're in a new place and maybe it's not the best thing for them. Maybe they're bummed out. You know what? I really liked it over there. We're leaving all my friends and we're going, to, going over here. We don't know all the details. We don't know the story. But what we do know is there's is this minor detail of, of them moving. And it turns out to be a major detail because she was just where she needed to be. I think we can learn a lot from that little verse. Many of us the little things in life, little details here and there, we, we might not understand them completely, but we do know that God is sovereign over all. Even as we reflect back on our testimony, how we came to know Jesus Christ as our Savior, some of those details and some of our stories, we weren't looking to have Jesus as our Savior. Something else happened that directed us towards him. I had a privilege of, of doing a funeral recently and, and I got to read the details of how the man came to know Jesus as his Savior. And his, he was getting too close to his girlfriend, so his parents sent him away. And out of rebellion, he started hitchhiking back to her and came to know Christ on that trip. His intention Perhaps wasn't the best, but God was using it for his good. And many of us may have similar situations, and that's exactly what we see with Jail. She is moving out, maybe not wondering why, but God has her exactly where she should be because they were allies. And what we see with Jael is, is interesting because we see her acting very motherly. He comes in. I'm going to give you what you need. I'm going to cover you up with a blanket. I'm going to give you some, something to drink. Things are going to go well. And then we see her <laughs> grab the, the tent stake and turn into an assassin. And, and, and there's, a, there's, a, there's a shift that we see, but really, it, it shouldn't surprise us. Women of those times were, we're the ones who set up the tents and took down the tents. To have a hammer and a tent stake was to use her household appliances, to use what she had, to be faithful where she was. And so this glory that we thought maybe well maybe it's, it's not Deborah's it turns out to be jail's. As she's faithful. And this is another thing that we have to understand this is unique part of God's redemptive history. So what this doesn't mean is if your neighbor pulls into his driveway with a Darwin sticker not to take your toaster and knock him upside the head for the glory of God. This is descriptive, not prescriptive. This is telling us something that did happen, and even that might seem hard. How could this be celebrated? Because we see in in chapter 5 that she's called most blessed of all women. How could this be celebrated? This looks like a a murderous act. I'd encourage us, especially those of us that are kind of struggling through this. uh, Pastor Nate did a a message a few uh, Sunday nights ago called, Does God Command Genocide? Pick up the CD, um, and, and that will be really helpful in this. But what we do have to understand is as God is God is good and he's just. And this was a part of his plan at this time. And so we see the story of jail and God using an ordinary woman to do some extraordinary uh, things. Next, we see Barak, Barak. and Barak is very interesting because we see Deborah come to him and say, "Has not the Lord commanded you to go in battle?" And then he says to her, um, I'll go if you go with me. I'll go if you go with me. The other time that this phrase is used is by Moses. When he says, I'm not going to go to the promised land, God, unless you go with us. If you go with us, God, I'll go to the promised land. If not, I don't even want to go. It's not worth it because the only reason I'm going is for you. And here we have Barak confronted with the truth, told that God's going to go with him, and him saying, well, I don't know if I want to go, uh, Deborah, come with me. Now, before we jump on Barak's back and and, 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 and be all self-righteous, I think we need to look in the mirror a little bit and recognize that we are so prone to the same thing. God commands us, I will build my church and Gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we see a little adversity and we start chewing our fingernails and panicking. And Barak looks a lot more like us than we look like Daniel. But we do see his faithfulness as he marches his men down in battles against 900 chariots of iron. Picture these like the drones of their day. They just come flying at you and there's not a whole lot of, of, of chance of them getting injured, but there's a whole lot of chance of you getting wrecked. 900 of them, they line them up side by side and they just drive through the opposition. Just mowing you down. And God's battle plan is this. God's battle plan is foolishness to the world. They're up in the mountains. He says, hey, go down to the valley. If you're doing battle with chariots of iron, you don't want to go down to the valley. You go in the mountains. Maybe they're, they're trying to drive around the mountains. Maybe, maybe the, their, their chariots aren't quite as good. They can't, they can't uh, do the terrain. But you go to the valley. They're just whipping right through you. They go down to the valley. The victory is the Lord's. And so we see them go down. We see them march back victorious. But we have to ask ourselves, how are they victorious in this? And Judges 5 gives us a little bit of a detail in verse 4. It says, The earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. I'll tell you one thing that's going to help. A bunch of rivers. Rain flying down. Those chariots are are stuck. Pretty good situation then. Pretty good situation then. So a plan that might seem foolish to the world, God uses to shame the wise. Sound familiar? Sound like 1 Corinthians? That God uses the foolishness of preaching Christ and Him crucified to shame the wise? To shame the wise. Obedience to God is what's called for. Then we see verse 14. This will transition us into the next portion. Verse 14. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day that the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go before you? Verse 15. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. It is God who gives the victory. And so here we see that God is worthy to be praised. God is worthy to be praised. Why? Because rescue results in worship. Rescue results in worship. Two things we see from the song of Deborah. She praises God for two things. That God's people moved out in obedience to fight for Him. And she praises God as the ultimate warrior. See, Deborah was judging. She was counseling. But she was not a warrior. They needed a warrior king. He was also a counselor. All pointing forward to Jesus who is to come. So rescue results in worship. One thing that we have to understand here is the beginning of Deborah's song contrasts our culture so much. You see, we're willing to take credit for the good things that go on in our life and blame God for the bad. And Deborah does the exact opposite. She gives God the credit for what ha- the good that happened. She gives God the credit and blames God those who don't participate on their own unwillingness. Which brings us to the last point there. Christians are zealous for others to worship God who is worthy. We see in Judges chapter 5 of, of them singing out and calling and, 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 and lifting up those who were brought into the mission of God even though it might have seemed the plan in and, 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 and the characters might not have, have seen how is this going to work out they were, they were brought in and they're fighting for the Lord and they're, they're serving the Lord but we also see others who are unwilling to move we're just going to stay hunkered down here because at least we're safe here we will kind of peer out the windows a little bit but we're, we're, we're not going to join in well God is worthy to be praised and those who recognize it want others to see that as well The mission that we have as the church today is a new conquest. We're called to proclaim the Gospel. To fight against the enemies of God by saying you can become the children of God by repenting and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. We're crying out to the One who was crushed in our place. So that we might be brought near. How can the people of God be dealt differently than the enemies of God? Because God has already dealt with the people of God on the person of Jesus Christ. He has taken our punishment. There's no judgment that remains for those in Christ because the judgment has been fully satisfied in Christ alone. So how does all of this translate to us today? And how does it affect the way that we even view communion? Well, let's look at the truths again. Those who are God's people are not, are not pressed to be crushed, but they're brought back into a joyful relationship with Him. Through imperfect saviors, they were brought back to a temporary rest, looking forward to the day when the ultimate Savior would bring His people into ultimate Rest. Those who are not God's people are crushed forever. They may experience joys in this life. They may snicker because they think things are going right. But their words will ring just as hollow as the mother of Sisera in Judges chapter 5. She says, obviously, they're delaying in coming back. Obviously, they're not doing that because they're just taking, they're, they're, just, they're just grabbing everything they can for their spoils. Little does she know that her son's been defeated. How often do we see that in the world today? Obviously, God's failing. Paul reminds New Testament believers that vengeance is the Lord he will repay. But there is hope for the rebel. There is hope for Christians who stumble and fall. And there is hope for those who are outside of Christ. The song declares that jail is the blessed above all women. And this sounds very familiar to Luke chapter 1. Mary is graced with the same words. Not because of anything Mary had done, but because God showed favor on her because to her Jesus was born. The king who was crushed and laid down his life for us. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. And now God is making that known throughout the world by his means. The proclaiming of the good news and the ordinances. Like the military strategy, they could be seen as foolishness to the watching world. A group of people gathered here at First Baptist this morning to hear somebody speak to them for a long period of time. Well, that's foolishness. What's well, foolishness to the world is the power of God for salvation, as the gospel's proclaimed. Taking of A cracker and juice could be foolishness. What is this? But to God is the visual representation of what Jesus did on the cross. It's us as a congregation gathering together and saying, He has done it. He's victorious. And we can eat together signifying that together we are His bride. And we're looking forward to the marriage feast of the Lamb where one day we'll eat and drink in His physical presence. That's the power of God. This is not what may be foolishness to the world. Even this morning as we're we're praying and and thinking through our lives, as as we're preparing our hearts to take, God is using the elements to convict us of sin in our life. At First Baptist, we believe in open communion. It means if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, we invite you to partake. But if we are not, we ask that you do not. And part of the reason for that is as the elements pass before you, I hope you can see two things. One, you are still outside of Christ. And two, it's as easy as taking hold turning to Christ by faith. Trusting in Him. Uniting with Him. And so let us be reminded this morning of the power of God who rescues His people. And let that turn us into songs of praise. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we thank You, God, and we praise You for Your goodness. We thank You for Your Word. Is proclaimed through broken person even here today. That somehow through it you are working to draw sinners to yourself. Knowing that hope is found in Jesus Christ and Him alone. God, as we take these elements, I pray that you even use them to remind us, to unite us to yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.